Here's a story you might can relate to. A young girl of 12 whose parents bought a house in the suburbs had to leave the school where she had been since kindergarten. She was not a particularly friendly young girl. She was shy and awkward. She was terrified of walking into the cafeteria at a new school. So when the time came, she hesitated at the door, looking at the miles of tables, chairs, and chattering students. She had difficulty breathing and sure couldn't think. Although she has no idea, somehow she went up to individual students and whispered that question that no kid wants to ask. May I sit here for weeks, or at least it felt like weeks? The answer to her lonely question was no. Today's gospel puts before us the two great doctrines of the Christian faith, the law and the gospel. And it does this in the form of two trick questions. The occasion is this. It is Holy Week. Holy Tuesday, in fact, three days before the crucifixion. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple, teaching. And in Matthew's telling of the story, on this Tuesday of Holy Week, Jesus was involved in a long series of arguments with Sadducees, lawyers, elders, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and their disciples. In each confrontation, he proves himself more careful, clever, and inspired than his adversaries. Later on, when Jesus questions them about the Messiah and his relationship to David, they are stumped and finally silenced. This is the last time we will hear Jesus preach in public until he utters his last words from the cross. The Sadducees and the Pharisees have been plotting to arrest Jesus, but they can't catch him. They are still trying. First, the Pharisees ask him about taxes and if they should pay taxes to Caesar. We all remember that. They did this to trap Jesus. They thought that no matter how he answered, they could have him arrested or he'd be rejected by the crowd. Then the Sadducees asked about the woman whose husband died, and she was remarried, and this happened seven times. And they want to know whose wife she will be in resurrection. They asked this because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus has answered both of their objections, so they will give it one last try. So our text begins with a question of the law. Rather than trying to ensnare him with a no-win question, they now approach Jesus with an open-ended theological question. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? While this may appear to be innocent, the question immediately poses a theological problem. How can one law be greater than another? Is there a hierarchy of laws in the Torah? Do some laws mean more to God than others? Can we not simply disregard the insignificant and follow only the significant laws? Their question attempts to prod Jesus into devaluing the law and discrediting himself as a teacher. Yet Jesus did not come, as we recall, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The Shema can well be called the cornerstone 
of Jewish faith and practice. Its importance for Judaism cannot be overstated. While often used as a prayer, fundamentally, the Shema is a statement of who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy. A reminder that monotheism was and is the defining characteristic of Judaism. It distinguishes the Abrahamic faith from all others. The Shema reinforces this basic truth about God and in turn commands Israel to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind. This command and this truth about God are intricately linked. Because the Lord your God is one, you shall love the Lord with the entirety of your being. Jesus' response was likely respected by the elders and scholars who attended that day. Then he quickly surpassed their expectations by including a lesser-known command from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This inclusion was marked by the important phrase, a second is like it. This phrase was radical to Jesus' audience. To put this command on equal footing as the Shema was surprising, particularly to the Pharisees. Jesus' addition of the neighbor love command in the discussion of the greatest command, even calling it like the first, reinforces the image of God who loves the neighbor as much as Israel. To many of the Pharisees, this image of God is at once unsettling and a stumbling block. If the God of Israel loves all nations as much as Israel, then everything about their identity is threatened. If God esteems all people groups as God's chosen and requires a corresponding love by the chosen people, are the Pharisees now supposed to love others as much as themselves? Are they called to love the unclean and rejected as much as this Jesus loves them? This son of David is now calling into question the foundation of their religious identity and practice. Jesus' answer is classic. Loving God is the first thing, the most important thing. But with it comes a corollary. To love God means that you also love God's people. Pharisees should have known this, but they had two major problems. First, they had been busy for centuries piling on their own man-made laws. They had expanded the Ten Commandments and the laws given through Moses to include all sorts of instruction to keep themselves set apart from the rest of humanity. The second problem was that they set different parts of the law against each other, especially this. They separated love for God from love for the neighbor. In their attempts to be holy and pure, they had pushed their neighbor aside. We see this in a number of ways throughout the Gospels. Remember how offended the Pharisees were when Jesus would sit and eat with sinners? This is because they would never do such a thing. They kept the sinners and the unclean at a distance so they would remain pure. Remember the priest and Levite and Pharisee that Jesus talked about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They walked on the other side of the street so they wouldn't come into contact with the dying man and thus become unclean for the service at the temple. In the very next chapter of Matthew, Jesus preaches a fierce sermon against the Pharisees and Sadducees 
He denounces their hypocrisy. Well, what more can be said after this? They were silenced. The Pharisees finally withdrew from the fight. On the next day, they hatched the plan that will remove this troublemaking prophet and permanently silence him. One of the key problems in interpreting this double commandment for our time is that we lose sight of the biblical meaning of love. Our culture has equated love with intense emotion. To love is a stronger response than to like, and both are measures of a passive response to something outside us. We like chocolate. We cannot help ourselves. We love a movie or a book. It moves us. We love a boy or girlfriend. They make us happy. We love our spouse. They complete us. But biblical love is not passive and it is not strictly emotional. In the Old Testament, there are references to many kinds of love, but the love referred to here by Jesus is the love of Deuteronomy 6.5, the love of Yahweh. This love is far from passive. It is the active response of the faithful person to the love of God. The Pharisees were misusing the law. They were misusing it to exalt themselves and destroy others. They used their love for God and great holiness as an excuse to despise their neighbor. They used their service in the temple as an excuse to neglect others. And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There is enough there for us to meditate on our whole lives. But let's think about this. When Jesus says that the command to love our neighbor is like the command to love God, is he giving us a fantastic gift? Is he saying when you love and serve and help your neighbor... It is as if you were loving and serving me. Remember Matthew 25. Jesus said, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. To love God with all our heart, mind, and soul seems nearly impossible. When we think of love as an emotion... How does one conjure up feelings for something as remote, mysterious, and disembodied as the concept of God? We cannot look into God's eyes. We can't wrap our arms around the Spirit. We can't even see the face of Jesus. If we could, that might evoke in us a profound feeling of love. We might fall in love with Jesus' beauty and grace if we could know Him as Mary and Martha did. But we are commanded to love an intangible God. Likewise, loving our neighbor is difficult. 
If love is merely our passive response to the person next to us, we are likely to be more than re- more often repulsed than moved to love. How can one legitimately look into the face of an enemy and feel unqualified love? It is nearly impossible. But biblical love is not passive. It is not something that occurs to us without our control or will. Biblical love is something we do. It is loving kindness, merciful action that both is generous and continuous. So here's the good news for Christian people. To love neighbors as oneself is to act toward the other as one would act toward those close to you. I am to treat the stranger as well as we treat those that I love emotionally. When the action is equal in each, the love to each is equal. This is counter to what is expected, but it is in keeping with what the commandment requires. This means that to those with whom I am intimate and to those I do not know, to those who may be dirty or obnoxious, and even to those who harm me, I can act according to the law of love. I can be merciful and gracious. To love the neighbor as myself is make a conscious choice and act upon it. Who am I to you? Who are we to each other? It's an astonishing thing, an appalling thing, that when Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors, he really meant love the one who is most unlike you. Love across the barriers. Love across the divides. Love across every conviction you love more than love. If you love NPR, love Fox News. If you are a Marcus Borg fan, love Rick Warren. I have no idea. No idea at all how to obey this commandment. And if I'm honest, a lot of the time I don't want to. And yet here we are together, invited guests at this Eucharistic table of thanksgiving, suffering, sacrifice, and remembrance. There's bread and wine here. There is mercy and justice here. There are empty seats here waiting to be taken. May I sit here, the young girl asked. I don't know how to love you. May I sit here? I'd like to learn now. May I sit here? I'm angry at you. May I sit here? We have work to do. May I sit here? The Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us both, is waiting. Amen.